there, everyone, and welcome to our second episode of Startup Station, the only podcast that combines startups, sustainable mobility, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm Angela Puffinball. And I'm Ashlyn Gentile. We are coming to you live from the Company Lab in Chattanooga. We are starting out today's episode with someone who absolutely fascinates us. He is an expert in helping innovate the supply chain industry. Yeah, so Tyler Cole, welcome. It's so great to have you here. Really excited to share the stage with you for this one. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Tyler, so tell us a little bit about what you do. Glad to. And thanks again for the opportunity. So uh, by night, I'm a podcaster similar to y'all on another channel there in Chattanooga with Freight Waves. I host their Net Zero Carbon podcast, which comes out weekly on Fridays and focuses on sustainable supply chain. Typically, we talk freight, fuels, and energy, but we also focus on digital innovations and other opportunities to reduce emissions or just elevate ESG in supply chain and freight. Uh, by day, I'm a management consultant with the group Arcadis, which is a global design and engineering consultancy. And I help um, clients across different sectors implement sustainable solutions in their organization from strategy to implementation and everything in between, including disclosures. There's a lot that goes into that. And I will have to preface everything we say on this show with this is Tyler speaking, not representing either of those great organizations. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Tyler is here representing himself and here to share his expertise. Yeah, you really have so much expertise with everything you just talked about. And you also didn't cover everything. You're currently also in the process of getting your master's from Harvard University. That's really impressive, first off. Congratulations on doing that. And we wanted to know if there's any industry insights that your experience at Harvard has given you so far. Well, thank you. First off, it's been a fun process to go through, and I still have a bit of a ways to go till I'm done, but it's it's nice to, to be always be learning. Thousands of insights. Harvard Business Review has long been a, a publication I enjoy reading because it just exposes you to so many things outside of your normal field. And that's that's the takeaway for me from this degree program is um, when you're taking coursework online by yourself, it's one thing you're learning material, but when you're taking it with a cohort of other students that are there with different reasons for being there in the class, you really get to learn diverse experiences, not just here like in Chattanooga or in Tennessee, but there are classmates that I have from all over the world who are doing the same program. So you get different perspectives that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and then just having the Harvard pedigree and some of the professors there that are teaching this material and have the experience and depth and research to be able to explain it clearly um, makes all the difference. Wow. I'm sure it must be so invigorating. It can be exhausting, too. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. As a former grad student, can attest to the amount of hours that you put in. So I'm really curious, how did you get here? How did you get to where you are today? Why supply chain? Why sustainability? I'd love to. It's a winding road, but even with that in supply chain, I find people that are in it kind of grew up in it or they fell in and never can get out again. You just kind of get stuck working in supply chain. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, it was the former. So I grew up around freight brokerages. My dad and, uh, and stepmom owned a company that was in the freight brokerage space. So I was the kid, you know, stealing pennies off truck dispatchers desks growing up summers and weekends. And uh, I just studied it at school. I went to UT in Knoxville, just up the road, studied uh, supply chain and logistics there and went to work for the family business for the first seven years of my career. Um, I really enjoyed it and have been in and around the freight industry ever since. But I just I wasn't satisfied with status quo of the industry. Mm -hmm. There's so many new ways to improve from digitization and now sustainability 
that I pivoted pretty quickly in year five or six to try and focus on how to be a differentiator. So we took a, a diesel fleet that we ran for a longtime customer and converted it to natural gas in the early 2010s. Um, and I got to ideate and execute and kind of run that whole program. And for me, it was just off to the races from there, like figuring out, okay, well, all we're doing is changing the fuel in the truck. Why is that different? Costs are different. Environmental performance is different. Customers' perception of it is different. How can we build value around all those things are, are things that I'm focused on now. Mm, yeah. And it's something that's always evolving too, right? You know, 20 years ago, the way we talk about sustainability and supply chain, it's definitely not the same way we talk about it today or even 10 more years down the road. Definitely. Definitely. Down the rabbit even, hole we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the words we use are different too. Like a lot of things are repackaged now because um, we just have different vocabulary for it. But you know, conservationism and environmentalism have been around for a long time. Pollution was the big, you know, phrase before we were talking about carbon emissions, right? Mm -hmm, and carbon right. emissions were still there. We were just focused on maybe local impact as opposed to global. So it, it continues to change and evolve. All right. Well, Tyler, let's talk about the present right now. You know, we talked about 20 years ago, 20 years down the road, but in today's age, what needs to be done to make supply chain more sustainable? And does this seem like a priority for freight companies in today's age? That's a tough one because it's a yes and a no to your second question. To your former, there's lots of ways to make them more sustainable. Um, and I'll try and make it as applicable or transactional or like approachable as possible because you can get very ethereal with these conversations, right? People that are operating in this space, private companies for the most part that operate in supply chain and logistics don't have policy levers they can pull. They're not moving trillions of dollars that are needed for like the broad energy transition. They're not building refineries and digging up critical minerals and making their own supply chains. They're users of um, equipment and energy, and they can only take what they can get their hands on. And so in some ways, uh, we're held captive by what's available to us. and the common forms of energy that we have available to do our jobs, right? The UPS driver doesn't get to choose what kind of truck he's going out to get for the most part, right? If they have EVs, which they have a lot of, or CNG trucks, awesome, go do that. But if they don't, the goods still have to move. And that's the hard part about decarbonizing or being more sustainable in supply chains. It is, it is slow kind of by necessity because these are expensive pieces of equipment, expensive infrastructure we're building out. So I like to pump the brakes for people and say, it is a journey. It's a marathon. We're going to get there. But those changes only happen because people in the organizations care enough to explore, right? Yeah. 12 years ago, when I started trying to figure out, could we just lease five trucks and turn them into CNG and, and test this out? It took me putting my hand up and trying to run the numbers and figure out how to sell it and make the solution something we could use at our organization. So I think to your first question, is it happening and do people care? Yes, they care. Younger generations care. Millennials care. They want to see organizations change from old dirty practices as they're perceived to new green, clean technologies. And that takes a lot of effort and collaboration across organizations. So I do think it's happening. I don't think it's happening at the pace anybody wants, but we are making progress. I'm truly fascinated to learn about your insights on workforce optimization in the supply chain industry. I recently learned that turnover rate in, in the supply chain sector is over 50%. What are your thoughts on that? How do we optimize our workforce and supply chain? If I had the silver bullet, there wouldn't be a problem because it'd be an easy solution. And it's just not. In, yeah. in some form or fashion, that flexibility in the supply chain workforce for a long time has been viewed as a resource. 
Mm. And because it's viewed as a resource, people use it like a resource. And so for some organizations where temporary labor, for example, or seasonal labor is part of their reality, that's, that's a business model, not necessarily an ESG strategy, mm-hmm. right? And the challenge comes in reconciling those two and making sure that when we do have lower wage entry-level positions or seasonal positions or flex positions, that as HR professionals in supply chain organizations, we still treat people with dignity and we evaluate processes, not only within like regulatory compliance and make sure we're being fully compliant to the places we live and do business, but just people compliance, right? It doesn't take immeasurable amounts of capital or time to be able to make someone's work experience more positive. Mm -hmm. And I'm always harping on this, like find that one little thing. I'm not saying you have to hire them and give them a 10% raise every year because I know that's not feasible in a lot of organizations. And there's always someone willing to do the job for less. So how do we make their work life balance, their work experience, not just tolerable, right? But somewhere they want to be for a long time. You're thinking from a first principles perspective, how do I bring someone in and keep them here? And that's not, that's not an easy thing to do. There'll always be some amount of churn, but I just like reframing people's mindset to like human centric approach. Definitely. Definitely. We need buy-in to make any organization work. Yeah, absolutely. You bring up such a great point, Tyler. And again, you're doing such great work right now. You know, we're not where you said you want us to be in the world right now when it comes to sustainability in supply chain, but you're still doing a great job with everything that you're doing. And that has to be super rewarding, right? It's a fun field. It's, it's challenging because you simultaneously um, are bombarded with, you know, doomerism and, and denials, denialism. And so you kind of have to operate in this, in this happy space of being a realist in some form or fashion. But you also get to work with organizations in my, in my consulting day job, especially that are just trying to figure it out because the goalposts are moving from consumer expectations, investor expectations, and business as usual doesn't cut it anymore in many cases. And so it's fun to be kind of the research arm, kind of the confidant, somebody who's going between um, all of these stakeholder expectations and informing the client on what you're seeing in the industry. That's really rewarding because at the end of the day, somebody made a decision on whether or not to implement a business change. And I just like being kind of the enabler for yeah. people to, to learn and make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. The voice of the industry. (laughs) So why in your eyes, is it so important for both companies and individuals to care about sustainability? Well, I mean, if we define sustainability as, you know, we're meeting today's needs without sacrificing those of the future. Mm -hmm. I think that's the common definition that many people would give. I mean, just common sense in an organization from when we were an agrarian society, like, we got to take good care of the resources we have available to us, right? We can't get out over our skis because then we're not going to be able to recover. Um, I don't know why I mixed those metaphors. That was an interesting choice there. But no, it just, it, it matters. It's good business, right? It's good business and it's good management to take care of your people. And as a individual, right, I want my, my family to see and understand that like we can't continue to uh, grow GDP every year at X percent without the trade-off that comes from depletion of resources, both naturally and and through people, right? So I want to try and embed some of this mindset shift, right, into my own family as well as the people that I do business with, because it, it, it does matter, right? If you're not operating sustainably, you're going to crash and burn. And I've had seasons in my life, many people here probably listening have too, where you just give more than you're taking in 
and it's not sustainable, you end up crashing, you go through burnout, you go through depression. And that's a, you know, a personal example of a business reality in many cases is like, you just got to make good decisions with what you have available to you. Mm -hmm. And the challenge in corporate sustainability is that those decisions often happen where we don't have all the information, especially when we talk about upstream and downstream suppliers and partners. And that's where we all have to collaborate and work together. Begin with the end in mind. You know, it's not <laughs> always about the now. It's about growing sustainably. And sometimes that means not immediate rewards. Right. That long-term payoff. Yeah. Well, Tyler, we have to know, you know, what is next for you? What can we look forward to? Uh, you know, what things should we keep our eyes out for? The climate Week is going on the third week in New York. Um, everybody comes together and pays attention to that. And because of that timing, we're going to have a virtual net zero carbon summit over at Freight Waves down the street from you guys, uh, where we'll have, I think, dozen interviews or so of industry leaders, startups, trying to pay attention to what's going on in the sustainable uh, mobility space, as well as freight and logistics. So definitely tune in for that. It's on September 21st. So if people want to stay updated on you, where can they go? I appreciate the shout out. Thank you. I'm on LinkedIn, Tyler Cole. I'm also on Twitter at Tyler A. Cole. Uh, I've responded to both of those pretty regularly. So listeners should definitely reach out if they want to talk. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Tyler. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure having you here. Yes. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for the opportunity. Love what you guys are building. All right, everyone. It's now time for our next segment sustainable solutions where we share an update on something in the world that needs some help. That's right, Ashlyn. And then we tell you how the sustainable mobility industry is helping solve this problem. So for example, freight, urban planning, autonomous vehicles, smart traffic, quantum, there's a whole bunch. But this story is really, really cool coming right out of San Francisco, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. So picture this. You are in bed super sick, you're just so worn down, you don't want to get out of bed to just do the simplest thing of going to grab groceries, which is essential for everyone. We've all been there. Oh yeah. Or even you're a senior and you need to be driven everywhere to get whatever you need. And there's a lot of people out there that this also applies to. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So Uber actually acquired a company which is called Serve Robotics. And they started as the robotics division of the company that you probably know. They're called Postmates. Okay. Hold the phone. I did not know that Postmates had a robotics division, so that's fantastic. No, right? <laughs> and I had, I had no idea that Uber acquired Postmates as a whole, too. Oh, wow. Okay. I know. <laughs> you learn new things every day. This yeah. is fantastic. It's all connected, Angela. It really is. Exactly. Well, um, you know, Serve Robotics, the robotics division of Postmates, they are robots that will deliver and serve you groceries, a meal, Whatever it might be. So with Uber Eats, this makes a lot of sense. Definitely. So I'm neither a senior nor in bed sick, but I want this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it would also just save you so much time from traveling out to get your groceries. Oh, it definitely would. And I'm also thinking of like big cities, like people living in New York City. If you don't have a car, walking five blocks to the grocery store 
to do big grocery shopping and then hauling all of that back to your apartment is such a hassle. I can only imagine how this would help people in big cities. Right. I know in big cities, you have to shop almost daily because you can't carry all those bags home. Exactly. It's just repeated micro shopping. Right. Well, Serve Robotics just accomplished something that really could change this daily concept of shopping every day by foot in a big city. These robots have achieved level four autonomy. And what that means is they can navigate fully autonomously in designated areas, which is right now, San Francisco. So there's all kinds of technology put into these robots that lets them watch out for obstacles like cars, pedestrians, the curb ending. There's these active sensors like LiDAR, ultrasonics, and cameras, plus features like automatic emergency braking, vehicle collision avoidance, and fail-safe mechanical braking. So they've really thought of everything when it comes to getting through a big city and avoiding traffic, essentially. I actually saw a smaller example of that on University of Tennessee Knoxville's campus. They have these little robots that drive around and deliver students their food. So it's really cool. And they're fully autonomous. I'm not so sure about level four. I mean, with all of this LIDAR, ultrasonics, camera <laughs> technology, that's that might be a little bit further down the road. However, this is fantastic. I feel like this is the UTK solution on a massive scale. And that is just so exciting. Yeah, autonomous technology is really starting to advance now, even here in Chattanooga, which that'll be a whole nother episode with the person in charge of all of that. Um, but here's the catch about Serve Robotics. You, you know, you see them on the streets of San Francisco and the company literally just went public like oh a month ago. Oh, wow. So, when a company goes public for the first time, you can typically predict how well that company is going to do based on its past numbers, whether it's sales or, you know, response to customers or things of that nature. But there's a bit of a catch here. For Serve Robotics, there was no revenue recorded in 2021. So experts are quite literally scratching their heads trying to predict how this company will do. But if it does do well... This could be a game changer, like we said, for cities that may be in short supply when it comes to delivery drivers. Maybe we'll see Serve Robotics in Chattanooga one day. You yeah, know. I would love that. I would <laughs> absolutely love that. I'd be like, here are my groceries. All right, bring them here. I'll be, I'll be waiting. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, of course, we have to plug in our great city of Chattanooga while you're listening. Of course, of course. Chattanooga is such a big hub for sustainable mobility, but it's also just a really cool place to hang out. It absolutely is. If you're considering visiting Chattanooga or moving to Chattanooga, you've got two local experts to tell you about some of the coolest spots in town. I'm so excited. All right, Ashlyn, what do we have today? Okay, Angela, let's talk whiskey. Uh, of course, in Tennessee, we got to talk whiskey. <laughs> exactly. So now when people think of famous Tennessee whiskey, most people first think of Jack Daniels, which is up near Nashville, naturally. Right. right. They're a big name, big brand, and that's really how Tennessee as a state kind of advertises whiskey. Makes sense. Absolutely. But did you know that Chattanooga has its own original whiskey brand? It's known as Chattanooga Whiskey, or its nickname is Chat Whiskey. 
and it's still running in Chattanooga today. You know, I did a whiskey tour at Chat Whiskey. It was so much fun. I'm not the biggest whiskey drinker, to be quite honest, but that whiskey was really good. Really? Yeah, and they had a really good one that they bring out around the Kentucky Derby season. It's a mint-infused whiskey, so it tastes like a mint julep. Oh, get out of town. Yeah, you don't need to put any mixers in it. You just pour it over ice, and it tastes like a cocktail. Oh, my God. So I'm not a big whiskey drinker either, and I've actually never been to the whiskey tasting. However, uh, my brother-in-law has a bottle of chat whiskey, and if I am going to drink whiskey, I'm a whiskey Coke kind of girl, mm-hmm. but you put some Coca-Cola in that, and it is so good. In my opinion, it's a little bit better than Jack Daniels. I agree, but don't tell them we said that. Don't tell Nashville. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Chattanooga whiskey is not just a great option for a drink. They've actually played a very significant role in changing state laws. State laws? Yeah. Really? A whiskey company? Yeah. Yeah. So according to Nuga Today, the creation of liquor used to be prohibited in Tennessee. However, after launching in 2011... Chat Whiskey founders lobbied to change those laws through the State House Bill 102, better known as the Whiskey Bill. Okay, that's starting to make a little more sense. I was like, how on earth is a whiskey company involved in state laws? But okay, the Whiskey Bill. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So Chat Whiskey began a campaign in 2012 by holding rallies and parties to gain public support. I love that. Yeah. So they campaigned for a year. And then in May of 2013, the whiskey bill was signed into law. And guess what? It made distillation in Chattanooga legal again for the first time in over 100 years. You know, sometimes when companies say they have a role in history, it's like a small little thing. And you're like, okay, that's cool, whatever. This is huge. This is huge. Wow. It's huge. And it's literally right down the road. I mean, we're we're filming from downtown right now. We could practically walk there. So <laughs> amazing how, how one organization has changed legislation permanently in Chattanooga. Yeah, that is super cool. And Ashlyn, I remember you said you've never done a chat whiskey tour. So I think... I'm going to have to take you. Yeah, yeah. We'll have something to add to our weekend itinerary now. Heck yeah. Okay, (laughs) sounds good. And again, yeah, that's one of the many great reasons why Chattanooga is just so cool. There's just so much history in like the local businesses alone. Yeah, it's almost like every business, well, every business has a story. But every local business in Chattanooga seems to have its own unique story with that special touch of chat love. Exactly. Beautifully put. (laughs) Thank you. All right, guys. So it is time for Founded or Fake. So in this electrifying segment, we explore the cutting-edge realms of sustainable mobility and challenge each other with mind-boggling startups that could be real or could be pure fiction. So the rules are simple. One of us presents a startup that sounds so incredibly cool, it could be real, but it also might not actually exist. So it's up to the other host to determine if it's a true innovation or just a product of the imagination. So Angela's going to be presenting today, and I'm going to guess whether it's real or whether it's fake. Yeah, you got me last time. You <laughs> described a very real sounding company to me. And I was like, oh, obviously it's real. And you were like, 
Plot twist. I'm just creative. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, Ashlyn, it is time to quiz you on your startup knowledge. Oh, man. Because <laughs> we are presenting TerraFuja. It's a company that has taken the concept of flying cars to an entirely new level. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say flying cars? Yes, like what you see in the movies, like literal flying cars. Okay, well... <sighs> I think you can already think of my guess, but oh my God, okay. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> All right. Well, TerraFuja is based in the US and they've developed a vehicle called the Transition, which is not only a roadworthy car, but can also transform into a flying airplane. This sounds like something out of Back to the Future. Yeah, or like Superman or something, like the yeah. Batmobile. Yes, this is a Marvel movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I swear, I swear, you heard it right. The Transition is a roadable aircraft that you can drive on regular roads and then when the need arises unfold the wings and take to the sky. So it's essentially a blend of a light aircraft and an automobile offering the convenience of switching between driving and flying modes. It sounds like the Weasley family car from Harry Potter. I know it really does. So imagine <laughs> like you're driving down I-24 and you're like, oh, well, I kind of want to go to New Mexico. Whoop. And then lift off. I know. I just want to drive one if it's real. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yeah, their vision is to provide a solution for people who want to travel longer distances quickly without the hassle of traditional airports. So the transition is designed to fit in a standard single car garage, and it can be fueled at regular gas stations. So when it's time to fly, the transition requires a runway for takeoff and landing, making it suitable for regional travel. So again, this sounds very futuristic, very back to the future. Um, but they have supposedly been making steady progress. So Ashlyn, do you think this is founded or fake? Okay, well, <laughs> I feel like my opinion is just dripping through my voice. I think you can already tell that this absolutely cannot be real. I mean, come on. A car <laughs> that turns into an airplane? Get out of town. Uh, get back <laughs> into town because it is real. Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you? You were going on, you were going on your little monologue and you were like, there's no chance it's real. And I'm just sitting here just like <laughs> smiling to myself like, oh, oh, I got her. Wow. You really did. I'm literally looking this up on Google right now. Oh, my yeah, God. Right. Oh, here's so the cool. picture of it. Well, we'll put what does this, it look like? We'll put this in the show notes. Okay. So this is a, a very large car. It looks almost like a camper van that turned into an airplane. Almost. It really does. That's so interesting. It looks like a camper bus. Yeah. Well, I guess a camper van is a bus. Wow. That's wow. really that's really wild. <laughs> well, believe it or not, they are successfully conducting test flights and they're actively working on refining the design and performance of the transition to meet safety and regulatory standards. So you can not only have like your own flying car, you could basically have a private plane. God. And not have wow. to be a trillionaire. That's the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> so here's to all the flying cars out there. And before we close out, if you are a founder, business, industry leader, or investor, we want to meet you. 
Absolutely. We're very active across Chattanooga. However, you can also find us on social media as The Company Lab or visit our website, colab.co. That's C-O-L-A-B dot C-O. You definitely want to check us out. And thank you so much for listening. Here is to all the entrepreneurs in Chattanooga and beyond.